Welcome to Planet Watch, everybody. Big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, The World's Beyond. Our interview guest is Jonathan Fortney of UC Santa Cruz, a world's class expert on planets in faraway solar systems and our growing prowess in finding out many fascinating things about them. No solving of formidable problems here on Earth today, being caused by us humans, but we will look at uh, planets beyond our own solar system in just a moment. But first... And by the way, we're going to kick back and enjoy a little cosmic relief with our interview today. We're going to have that interview for you in a minute, but you can subscribe to our Planet Watch podcast by going to the website planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio.com. And we'd like to give a special thanks to Michael Zwirling, for sponsoring this program on our local radio station, KSCO, here in Santa Cruz. And a special hello to our listeners in North Carolina, in the Carborough Chapel Hill area, as well as Columbus, Ohio, and sometimes people in West Virginia. So welcome to our listeners all around the globe, as well as in the United States. We're very happy to have you on board talking about big solutions, which we certainly need uh, to everyday problems that are facing our planet. Before we go to our interview, let's have a short news roundup from our interns, Maya Rodriguez and Tommy Martin. Get away, Maya. A group of chemists at Colorado State University have discovered a new polymer that could become an eco-friendly alternative to petroleum plastics. The polymer material has many of the same characteristics that make plastic so convenient. It's lightweight, heat-resistant, and durable. Unlike plastic, however, this new polymer can be completely converted back to its original molecular state. This means the raw materials can be reused an unlimited amount of times. According to the journal Science, recycling the polymer is a simple lab procedure and can, and can be accomplished without the use of co uh, toxic chemicals. While the chemists hope that their sustainable polymer material will one day compete with conventional plastics, the patent and the resulting product are still a ways away from being put on the market. Thank you for that story. You know, often with these good news stories, they don't seem to be fast enough for my taste. It's always like, well, they're in testing mode or, you know, someday they'll be out. Like, Get on with it. <laughs> you know. Actually, that one brings up something. I was just talking to a couple people the other day about this. The ultimate recycling system would be, and I think we can do it as humans, if we had something that could take anything, not just plastics, but, you know, the worst pollutants you can think of, they're all made of elements, just in particular combinations. If you could get something that reduced everything to its component elements, and then you just chromatographically separate those elements and siphon them off into different vats of, you know, cadmium here, silicon there, calcium there, and then those elements can be used for whatever elements are used for all over the world. That would be the ultimate recycling system, and it just will take a lot of energy. And, hey, we have a whole lot of energy, by the way, with the sun. Most of it's going to waste. So let's get with it, all you creative kids and engineers out there. That, that's your ultimate recycling system. And Maya has just given us a glimpse of it there. Or you could bring a cup next time you go to the store to a cafe and have them fill it up. Voila, you have just saved your, a whole plastic cup. So there you go. Very simple. Just bring one and wash it at home. 
There'll be washing stations soon, I can tell you. That's going to be the next thing, so you can wash your coffee cup instead of... I've got mine here with water. It's invisible almost, but yes, it's uh, reusing it. And by the way, Jonathan, do you need some water? One no. of our interns can get you some water. Okay. <laughs> Anybody in the audience need water? Great. Okay, good. Go We're get going, some. Going on to our next H2O. news. H2O. <laughs> right, Tommy, go for it. Yeah, here's some action that has happened recently. The European Union has voted in favor of an almost complete ban on the most widely used class of insecticide in the world. Neonicotinoids, uh, neonicotinoid pesticides, excuse me. These more substantial restrictions come two years after the European Union had voted for a partial ban, which applied to crops like maize, wheat, barley, and oats. Now, under the newly agreed uh, commission regulation, almost all outdoor use of, of the chemical will be banned. A recent report from the European Food Safety Authority found neonicotinoids posed a threat to many species of bees and that the, pesti the pesticide drifted from the applied area. Once the ban goes into effect the end of the, at the end of the year, the pesticides will only be allowed in greenhouses. While it may have taken the EU almost a decade to come to this new conclusion, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is only now reevaluating the pesticide. Once again, get on with it, folks, because we can't lose our bees or we'll lose a large portion of our crops. Yeah, and a lot of European bee species were starting to die off. That's why they had to. We've been covering that story on the show, and it's not just European bee species. It's our own here at home. So we need to get on with that and uh, yeah. not just evaluate but ban neonicotinoids in this country in order to save our agriculture. But our EPA administrator is under a lot of uh, scrutiny right now, so he might not get around to... That ban we need soon. a new EPA director, personal opinion. And meanwhile, us, uh, we well-informed U.S. citizenry need to uh, exercise our democratic birthright and get on our so-called leaders to get doing the right thing and educate them <laughs> to, uh, you know, they got kids and grandkids too. They have to care about those people. You got to eat. A lot of food comes from bee pollination and bees. We did an excellent show uh, with a gal from Columbia, a graduate student way back in the spring. Check that out on our archives at planetwatchradio.com. That was about bees. Indeed, and we're very glad to be bringing on our guest today, Jonathan Fortney. He is a professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He is a Minnesotan, and so that means, you know, he might speak a slightly different language today, but we'll interpret. And he's <laughs> probably feeling pretty hot in the, it's pretty hot in the <laughs> studio today. Can somebody turn down the, or is it just me? Anyway. No, it's global warming. <laughs> okay. He received his Ph.D. in physics at Iowa State and his, uh, another Ph.D. in case the first one wasn't enough uh, in planetary sciences in 2004 at the University of Arizona and came on over to UC Santa Cruz in 2008. His work uh, was really interesting, so I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk about helium rain, but just the thought of it, how could it possibly fall? That was in Saturn, I think, <laughs> in, deep in the interior of Saturn. Doesn't it go that's up? Right. Anyway, we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> helium rain just can't fall. Um, so he's worked on several giant uh, telescopes, both on Earth and in space, which he will be talking about, but his biggest uh, claim to fame, what we're going to be talking about mostly today, is exoplanets. Well, you might have heard of exoskeletons. Those are skeletons you wear on the outside of your body, if you're an insect, usually. I suppose exoplanets are planets outside of our solar system. Is that correct? Mr. That's right, yep. Okay, got that. And, of course, you know, 
people being as narcissistic as they are about their own planet, they would like to find another Earth. Hopefully not to pillage, but, you know, there's a lot of curiosity about whether there are Earth-like planets in our solar system. So, or far away, not in our solar Well, there is one. There is one in our solar system, <laughs> but in other solar systems. There's not just an Earth-like one. There is one Earth here, uh, but we are looking outside. So let's start by asking a question. In the best circumstances of your guessing, which I know scientists don't like to too much how many possible earth-like planets could there be and i know that's an equation that keeps changing but give yeah. a uh well there's about a hundred billion stars in the milky way galaxy and uh we now know from nasa's kepler mission that um which was uh, designed to find planets around other around other stars that um Maybe about a third of those look like they have an Earth-sized planet that's potentially in the, in, the, in the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone. So that's maybe something like 30, 30 billion potentially Earth-like planets. And how do we find those? How do we know they're there even? How do we detect them? That's your job, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, if from Earth, sometimes we can see Venus and Mercury pass directly in front of the sun. And that's called a, it's called a transit. It's like an eclipse. And so, uh, if you build a telescope that stares at stars for a very long period of time and just just monitors how bright they are, you can occasionally see planets pass in front of those stars. Uh, so we can see those transits when the star dims by a tiny amount when the planet passes in front of it. Like a and, mini eclipse. Kind and just of. to like be clear, uh, we don't have the technology yet to directly image the silhouette of the planet going across the star as we can with Venus and uh, Mercury, but but you just see a tiny reduction in the star's brightness, and if it happens on a periodic basis, you figure, ah, something's going on there. It's kind of almost a problem in noise analysis, though, that the reduction is so tiny, and yet we can tease it out because of the regularity of the signal. Yeah, it is very tiny. So uh, an Earth-sized planet going in front of a sun-like sun -like star blocks out about one part in 10,000. So that's 0.01%. So UC Santa Cruz is really a pioneer, and of course we're sitting here, it's alumni weekend, a lot of people are coming from near and far, and one of the famous planet hunters is Jeff Marcy. He was a grad student at UC Santa Cruz, and he was one of the first people to figure this out, how to see these faraway planets, right? Yeah, yeah. So Jeff uh, was a grad student at, uh, at, uh, at Santa Cruz. And so he, he specialized in a, in a whole other method of finding planets. That was the first way that paid off in the mid-1990s. And that was if you stare at a, at a star, um, it actually can, can move over time because the planet and the star orbit around their common center of mass, kind of like a, like a teeter-totter, like a seesaw. And so if, even if you can't see the planet, if you see the star wobble a little bit over time, it's that wobble that you actually can see that tells you there's a planet there. For our guests listening or watching, I should say, on Facebook, um, you can tell Jonathan is really excited about his work. And he's, you know, like a little kid. I imagine <laughs> you probably started out your life looking at stars through telescope. Is that how you got interested in all of this? No, uh, I really wanted to be a baseball player. Hey, me too, uh, me that too. Was, that was my dream <laughs> until I was in high school. And uh, then I also really liked math. And so I got into math and physics in high school. And then when I was in college, there was that uh, Martian meteorite in 1996. There was a Martian meteorite um, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, even had a press conference about it because there was, uh, there was thought to be signs of, of nano-life, microscopic life in this Martian meteorites. And that um, really got me interested in planets 
and that really changed uh, my focus ever ever since. Yeah. It wasn't because you like to look at round balls <laughs> <laughs> coming toward you. That's right. I just yeah, I decided to do something else with that. Yeah. Right. You followed that same idea into the, into mm-hmm. space. Jeff, so, Jeff Marcy, by the way, um, his method, uh, you know, the, the way they detect the wobble of the parent star is with, again, very tiny, um, astoundingly tiny, amazing we can even detect them, shifts, you know, Doppler shifts. The star is slightly coming towards you and away from you on a cyclical basis. And so the red shift and the blue shift, they can detect this uh, totally. I mean, and and all these methods are sort of akin to in, in amazingness to, to detecting a candle next to a gigantic searchlight aimed right at you from across the country, you know, from coast to coast, 3,000 miles away. And as Jonathan told us the other day, it's actually even harder than that, what they've managed to figure out. But, but So I have a question. Is Why is it important to be looking for these planets? I mean, besides maybe this harboring fantasy some people might have that we could have another planet to, what, despoil or, or move to in case this one got too hot. Um, but beyond that, why has it become a priority of NASA or anywhere else to be looking for these in particular? Yeah, I think people have always been interested in astronomy, interested in, 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 what, in what's out there and learning about our, our universe. And um, as, the, as our tools have gotten better, what people, what astronomy has done over the past hundred years is people used to study stars and then we realized there were galaxies outside of our own. Then people studied galaxies. And then as our tools have gotten better, uh, we've actually been able to move on to studying planets. And so in the realm of astronomy worldwide, there's still people studying stars, galaxies, but more and more people have gotten interested in studying planets because it's, it's a new hot field. And, and I think it does kind of touch the public in a, in, a, in a way that other areas of astronomy just don't because, you know, we, of course, live on a planet. And I think, I think that part of astronomy can be a little bit more close to home. It touches people in a different way than big diffuse balls of balls of gas or something and are we within your lifetime to the point where you'll be able to actually see um some image of what's on these planets besides just the wobble and the fact that we know they're there um so we have uh images of around 10 planets but by that that's just as a as a point of light um so in terms of like seeing something like a like a continent or something like that i i don't think that's probably going to happen in my lifetime um but it's it's, people have talked about it. NASA has commissioned studies for what it would take to do, would have to be multiple space telescopes flying in, in an array. But people have thought about what, what that would take. Yeah, and what about the um, search for life? How does this intersect with astrobiology, the people who are kind of trying to figure out, A, how life started on this planet, because we don't know yet exactly, and B, whether there are planets harboring life elsewhere, at least the best candidates, right? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of, of crossover. I mean, um, that's, that's the very thing that got me interested in, in studying planets was, was the astrobiology question. And, um, you know, today lots of universities, including UC Santa Cruz, are, are trying to build bridges between earth sciences, earth and planetary sciences, uh, origin of life, biochemistry. And that's something we're actually just starting to, to try to do in, at, at UC Santa Cruz. We're trying to, to start a new astrobiology institute oh. um, to, uh, to, to try to bridge these gaps. So I think there's, there's lots, of, lots of things going on. Do you know David Deemer? I do. Okay. Yeah. He's a great 
done a lot of great work on cells yeah, and how yeah. maybe they started with mm -hmm. bubbles. It's a fascinating work. Yeah, we should get him on this show. Sometime. Yes, he we should. He likes to do this kind of stuff. So, um, of course, people ask, you know, how possible is it that life could have evolved on any of these other planets? Or is this such a unique situation here that carbon-based life could only have started on Earth? What, what do you answer people like me yeah. who ask these pesky questions? I would say a lot of astronomers have this kind of similar point of view. I mean, we're not biologists, so everyone should take that with a grain of, a grain of salt. But um, if you look at the history of, of, our, of our planet, once the planet cooled off and uh, it became suitable for life, um, it seems like life started pretty quickly after that. And so from that point of view, I think most astronomers think, well, there's, there's, there was no maybe there was nothing, you know, different or essential or importance about our planet that couldn't be repeated many times over. So maybe on other planets, if they, ha if they can have liquid water and they are rocky objects, maybe, maybe that, that start of life happens relatively commonly in the galaxy. And it might be that intelligent life is very uncommon, but that, you know, maybe simple life arises commonly. I think that's, I, w I think that's, that's, that's pretty much what I think. You know, I, I would certainly like to test that, but that's that's my point of view. It seems more plausible to find a microbe somewhere on a, another planet or even, you know, a simple life form than it would be to find talking, walking aliens that yeah, have their own space travel. And that's why, you know, if you go all the different branches of evolution so far, we have a data point of one species out of all the species on Earth that's arisen to the point where... We could go outside of our own solar system, or at least outside of our atmosphere with a vehicle. So all the movies that speculate certainly try to imagine how else they might have arrived other than in a spaceship, because the distances, as you're finding, between planets are so vast, you would need to suspend your body or be able to live thousands of years or, I don't know what, travel faster than the speed of light. Those right. are the three choices, I guess. Are there others? Maybe I missed one. I don't think so. I, yeah, the distances are large. I mean, it's uh, you know tens of light years to, to our neighboring systems. And how and long does that translate? How long would you have to live to get to the first exoplanet that might harbor life-like atmosphere, life harboring? Uh, well, it depend on how fast you were going, <laughs> uh, right? So if if something is, um, you know, let's say it's ten light years away, and if you if you were only going if you're going a tenth the speed of light. It would take you, you know, hundred years to get there. Yeah, you got to live a long time, and it's pretty boring inside those tin cans that are <laughs> going via Newton's first law across the vacuum of outer space. Um, you know, um, in honor of Alumni Weekend here at University of California, Santa Cruz. Tell me, Jonathan, if this is outdated, but as of a couple of years ago, whoever keeps tallies on this stuff declared that UC Santa Cruz was number one in the world in astronomy and astrophysics. I don't know if you ever heard that one, but that was Ballyhooed, or at least around here, <laughs> some years ago. And from what I can tell, it's pretty much still up there, right? <laughs> yeah, we're definitely one of the top departments in the world. It's a great, great department to be in. And, and I think the metric that you heard was um, how often our work gets cited by other astronomers. Uh, the citation Citations, kind of thing. yeah. And you know, uh, we run Lick Observatory, among other things, which is over on Mount Hamilton, east of San Jose. And just a quick little story about Jeff Marcy. Um, Jeff Marcy, the guy who was the second in the world to discover a planet orbiting another star via this wobble method, the star wobbling. 
Uh, I rode a bicycle with him, or two bicycles, up Mount Hamilton to Lick Observatory years and years ago. The astronomy department used to have a big picnic up there in the fall. That road is amazingly windy. It's like a space-filling fractal curve. You get to a point where you see Lick Observatory right above you, but the road sign says Lick Observatory five miles. So you still got five miles of extremely wiggly, curvy road. Anyway, it was quite a... And then... Uh, you a needed couple, space travel. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, later, I rode up with the guy we interviewed last fall, Martin Gaskell, another astronomer from UC Santa Cruz. Remember, we talked with him about supermassive black holes at centers of galaxies. But anyway, uh, listeners out there, you can email us now and soon and in between shows too by the way uh and you can ask our guest uh, jonathan fortney a question or give us comments and that address is radioplanetwatch at gmail.com so keep those cards and letters coming and uh and Tommy, you can also Tommy make a comment right on facebook uh so if you're yeah. watching us hi you can see that joe for once is not wearing a big loud, loud hawaiian shirt, shirt. A very quiet shirt a very <laughs> subtle because he came from a wedding so um you can see a shirt and you can comment on facebook by um, asking a question right then and there and we'll read it aloud on the air so uh, this would be a good time. This is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan. We're speaking with Jonathan Fortney. He is an astronomer, head of the department there, of the part of the department that looks for exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system. And that's what we're talking about today. There's a particular um, piece of equipment to use, right, that's uh, up there already in space looking, a telescope. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, so... Uh, NASA has has launched a couple different space telescopes that are specifically for trying to find planets. So uh, Kepler, the Kepler mission launched in 2009, and that's still going. And that looked in, in one patch of the sky in the constellation Cygnus. And uh, it initially just looked there for four straight years. It was looking at the brightness of around 150,000 stars, and it found about 5,000 planets. And so that was our first kind of statistical census for how common planets are in our galaxy by looking at that one particular patch. Um, and what launched just about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, was something called TESS. That's the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And that's going to look, um, as opposed to just one patch of sky, very deep, it's going to look at all the bright stars in the sky. So it's going to look in every direction over the course of two years, looking at all the nearby stars to find planets around them. And given how diverse the planets just in our solar system are, you would think you're going to find all kinds of weird stuff out there that, you know, some of which have rings like Saturn, some gas giants. What are some of the things you think that you might find that maybe we don't have in our own <laughs> camp Oh, here? sure. There's incredible things. So, I mean, one of, the, one of the patterns we see in our own solar system is that there's small, like Earth, rocky planets relatively near to the sun, and then we have the big, giant planets far from the sun. So that was a pattern that we expected to see everywhere else. Um, but that's actually not what we see. Um, that does happen, but you also can find uh, big, gas-giant, Jupiter-like planets in, like, two-day orbits. Two days. That's so fast. there are several thousand degrees. Um, so you can also see th systems where they alternate from a giant planet to a small planet to a giant planet again. Um, you can find systems where... Um, you know, interior to Mercury's orbit, which is a 90-day orbit, interior to that, we don't have anything. You can find systems where there's four or five planets, all larger than the Earth, all interior to, to like, Mercury's orbit. So um, they're really hot or they're freezing way really out Really hot, yeah. yeah. The, uh, it really seems that most planetary systems have 
more and hotter, maybe not more total planets, but hotter planets. It's pretty common for there to be planets in 10, 20, 50-day orbits where we don't have anything. Hmm. Yeah, at the beginning, that was kind of like almost all we were finding, and I found it very disappointing. Of course, it's understandable because, you know, our technology is getting better all the time, and at the beginning, we could only detect these gigantic the big things, ones, yeah. which are way bigger than Jupiter and ridiculously close to the planet, to the star, you know. And uh, they're called hot Jupiters. And, uh, but now we're starting to get good enough to detect things that are more interesting, less disappointing, <laughs> more, more like us, even if we can only wave at them from 50 light years away or whatever. So there's nothing so. standardized about the way the universe did their big, its Big Bang and created all these spheres that have various things on them. It sounds like there's no like recipe for how it all we're goes. We're still figuring it out, yeah. <laughs> if, there, if there is a recipe, it's not clear to us just yet, just because the diversity we see is really dwarfed by the diversity that we see, we're seeing in, 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 in other planetary systems compared to our own. So ours is just kind of a blip. We, we don't necessarily, we always are so centric, right? Like everything should be just like <laughs> right. us because that's yeah. all we know and have seen for you know, let me ask you, there was a, probably a colleague of yours, maybe she's still at UC Santa Cruz, I think that one of the very first people to discover a star that had multiple planets around it, I mean, other than our sun, was at UCSC, it was a woman. Deborah, Deborah Fisher? Deborah Fisher, yeah. She's a professor she's still, at Yale now. Okay, and I think it was a star, a star with three planets around it, and they could actually, I remember seeing a lecture on I think it was 55 Cancri, I think now that's known to have five planets. Oh, really? Yeah. Cancri being uh, cancer, the constellation of I cancer? I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the Latin or whatever name they have for these things. By the way, he mentioned Cygnus a minute ago um, as the Tess is, was studying stars in Cygnus. That's the swan, the northern cross. The head of the cross is actually the tail of the swan, a bright star called Deneb, D-E-N-E-B, which means tail. And in the constellation Leo, by the way, there's a star, Denebola, which is tail of the lion. <laughs> Sometime I'll show you these things if you get in touch with us. So are there habitable exoplanets out there? There are definitely planets that have been found that um, are in an orbit around their star. That the, the planets receive the same amount of energy from their star as we receive from the sun. And uh, those planets look like their Earth size, and they have a, probably an Earth, and we can measure their masses, and they have an Earth, Earth density. Um, but that's all we can say right now. We don't, we don't yet have the technology to probe the atmospheres of such small planets. Um, people have used other telescopes to look at the atmospheres of these gas giant planets, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where we can do that for the smaller potentially more Earth-like planets. Well, so would that take, would it take looking farther or would it take sending probes out or what would It takes a bigger telescope. Mm -hmm. And so the James Webb Space Telescope is launching in 2020 and that has a six and a half meter mirror, so about 20 feet, which wow. is much larger than Hubble. Hubble's meter is eight feet. And um, so that, one of the main science cases for that is to actually look at these transiting planets, that these mini eclipses, and you can see a, a tiny amount of the, of the star's light that passes through the planet's atmosphere during the eclipse. And you can look for molecules in the planet's atmosphere. And so we want to look for things like water vapor, um, potentially oxygen, carbon dioxide, things like that. So mm. that's one of the main science cases for James Webb and that launches in 2020. Mm. That's and how amazing. far away is the most habitable planet so far that they think they've found? Uh, so uh, the, the nearest star to the sun is Proxima Centauri. 
And uh, that is was found two years ago to have one of these um, radial velocity wobble planets around it. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to eclipse the star, but that planet uh, looks like it's in that star's habitable, habitable zone where yeah. it would have a potentially Earth-like temperature. So that would, that's our very nearest neighbor, actually. And is that right next to Alpha Centauri? Is it actually a partner of it gravitationally? Yeah, that's right. It, that, that's the star that we, I grew up learning was the closest star to Earth. It was Alpha Centauri, but Proxima, I guess, is smaller and dimmer than Alpha Centauri. That's right. right? It's actually closer. You, you, you can't see it with your eye. It's faint. And it's closer faint. now, but do they orbit each other, and does that change they over time? They do. I don't, off the top <laughs> of my head, remember the period. Uh, yeah. or, which, or, or what the plane of the orbit yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> So, uh, yeah. You know, looking on um, NASA's uh, website, they are framing this as search for another earth and maybe some marketing person just liked the way that sounded <laughs> but it does sound good <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should send out a memo maybe not we don't yet go there till we figured out how to take care of oh, this for one. sure yeah spare earth in our back pocket or in yeah. our trunk no planet b as they say <laughs> <laughs> no Planet B. That's what didn't Macron say that this week? Yes, he did. yes. No Planet B, and he said something very compelling and wise, and completely Maybe. different from what we typically hear these days from the so-called top around here. But what if it turned out there was a Planet B? Would that change anything that we're doing? Do you think, either of you? I think it would be interesting to think about. I, you know, I think. It would certainly change, I hope, um, it would change people's point of view on our universe if we, if we, we were able to see that there was life around, in another planet, in a, perhaps a planet very similar to the Earth. But, you know, given the, the vast distances, uh, it's not like we can just up and jump ship to the next one. I mean, it's so hard just, just even to get to Mars. I mean, that's... It's kind of like so yet. near, but yet so far. You know, again, we can wave at them. We can think about them. We can maybe even send signals back and forth and try to decipher them if they're within a few tens of light years. <laughs> Still a long time to send a message out and get a reply back after it, they figure out how to reply. <laughs> right, if there's anybody who could reply at all, except in, like, snake language. So <laughs> it might not be decipherable by us. Uh, you know, what are they saying, if they say anything at all? Um, but it does beg some interesting questions about our uniqueness, our specialness mm -hmm. that we like to think of ourselves as having, and also whether we just plunder whatever it was we found. You know, I got to tell you a little story, which I don't think I've told Jonathan, but um, some years ago at NASA Ames, where I was working at the time, we had the first international conference on circumstellar habitable zones. That's a term that Jan Jonathan used for if you're in the right zone where, you know, it's like Goldilocks. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. <laughs> That's kind of where we are now. And it was a whole conference and Carl Sagan was there and I met him and talked to him and it was in the last year of his life. And that evening, I remember he gave a slideshow at a big public venue over in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And he showed a picture of the Earth, you know, a, a montage of satellite images of the Earth at night. The brightest thing on the Earth, by the way, he pointed out to us, was this gigantic light in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it's the Japanese squid fishing fleet. They use these really bright lights to lure the squid up. But then I remember there was a hilarious question somebody asked to him. The guy raised his hand and Carl calls on him and says, uh, 
Carl, how many galaxies did you say there are in the universe? <laughs> Everybody cracked up because, you know, you knew what the guy was trying to get Carl to do. He said billions and billions. But he actually did address that. He said, well, I never actually said billions and billions. I said billions a lot of times, but I never said billions and billions. So that's a quest to you listeners out there, some homework. See if you can ever find Carl Sagan actually saying billions and billions. He said billions with quite a lot of panache. But um, never billions and billions, although there are that many. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in two, 2016, I believe, that NASA had a big announcement that they had found seven planets 40 light years away orbiting a star called TRAPPIST-1. Was that a big moment in this history of your field to have that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a relatively nearby star, and it has those seven planets are all about the same size as the Earth. And it's a very small it's a very small planetary system. The star is only one 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 thousandth as bright as the sun. So it's only 0.1% as bright as the sun. So those planets are tucked in very close in like a two-day orbit, a four-day orbit, an eight-day orbit. And so they're, they're, they're but um, three of them might be um, potentially habitable. Three of them might be in this Goldilocks zone. So I, I think that system might never be surpassed in terms of uh, the, the amazing di uh, diversity it likely has, and in terms of like a, a laboratory to think about how planets B and C and D that all formed around the same star, they all are about the same size, how did they diverge over time? So that's one of the main targets with the James Webb Space Telescope that's already planned. That's going to be the system that probably gets observed the most, actually. That's exciting. By the way, I just thought of a question I've never thought of before. <laughs> I hope you maybe know the answer. Uh, who was James Webb? He was, was some the, government administrator or something? James Webb was the NASA administrator during the, uh, the Apollo okay. era in the 60s. All right, okay. Yeah, the good old days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. <laughs> and is the new head of NASA supportive of this project? We just got a new administrator, right? He, yeah. Um, I, I, I haven't heard either way. Um, uh, you know, this, this James Webb telescope was the, the, the astronomical community's number one um, um, priority the past couple decades. So I would be shocked if it didn't launch. It's almost totally finished. They're just do, doing testing on it now. So I, I think it'll be fine. But who knows? Safe and sound yeah. in the hands of whoever. Um, and then they discovered 95 new ones after that, you know, big discovery in 2016. So... Is it now becoming kind of run of the mill to discover exoplanets, or is it still a big deal? <laughs> I would say it's it's both. So uh, just in terms of just building up more numbers, maybe it is becoming a little run of the mill, just finding more and more. But that's uh, the reason to launch this test, which is to find all the nearby planets, because those are the ones you can use the James Webb Space Telescope for to follow up to get spectra of their atmospheres to find out what the planet's atmospheres are made of. And so that's really the next step is not just finding more, but finding the ones that are most easily characterized with, with, with follow-up telescopes to learn what the planets are like, to learn about their atmospheres. That's really the next step we're taking now. And I got a science question for you. You said a little while ago we can measure the mass of planets around other stars. Now, from what physics I know, which is a fair amount, let me guess, you have to know, well, you have to know how fast that's, planet is moving around the star and how close it is and you got to know the mass of the star that's attracting it can you do it with anything less than that information or maybe some different information uh no that's what you need to know so yeah you're looking so the 
One of the things that's great about stars is that we understand them so well. So just by looking at a star and taking a spectrum of it, we can determine a star's mass within about 10%. And then uh, we then need to see some sort of periodic transit or, or that, that wobble technique, the Doppler shift technique. That's, and by looking at that and looking at the wobble the star makes, that's how we get the planet's mass. Hmm. Interesting. If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're talking to Jonathan Fortney, who is a specialist in exoplanets. And by the way, they used to be called for a while. So extrasolar planets was in vogue for a few years. I didn't particularly like that because it sounds like, oh, it's extra planets out there in our solar system. <laughs> but now it's back to exoplanets, which I like. And by the way, email us, will you, at <laughs> radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So Maya and Tommy are eagle-eyeing or hawk-eyeing their computers. They're scanning the messages. skies. Of, they're scanning yeah, yeah, outer space for incoming. <laughs> we're looking for exo-listeners out there. Let us know if you want to live on an exoplanet. Wait. <laughs> let us know. Yeah. yeah, let us know if you want to live on an exoplanet. Or... Yeah, I guess you could call this show Exoplanet Watch. <laughs> <laughs> exoplanet Watch Radio today. We're, yes, we're watching the skies for um, planets that we might not have seen or didn't know were there. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're a kid, first looking through a telescope, but when I first saw the rings of Saturn through an actual telescope, suddenly all of that stuff that looks like dots poking through, you know, a, a giant shoebox with a light on top um, looked real. <laughs> I believe there were actually round, giant worlds out there, whereas before it, it was, seemed very abstract. How do you get um, the average layperson involved and interested in astronomy in general how do we get people supporting programs like what you're doing 